Today on Walter Edgar's Journal, we're featuring a public conversation I had with Dr. William Link from the University of Florida, and we'll be talking about progressives in South Carolina in World War I. The conversation was recorded at the University of South Carolina's Capstone Conference Center in Columbia on February the 6th, 2018. It was part of a series, Conversations on South Carolina History, sponsored by USC College of Arts and Sciences. The topic tonight really is South Carolina and Southern progressives in general, and I've already had one member of the audience say, I thought South Carolina and progressivism, that's a contradiction in terms. <laughs> I don't know that that's, that that's the case. So, Bill, in terms of the American South, talk a little bit about what progressivism was and particularly Southern progressivism. Yeah, I think... Um it should be understood as a phenomenon that arose from towns and cities. It was an urban, uh, kind of a coming of age of urban America, really. And um, this is true of the South as well. I think the one thing to keep in mind about progressivism and the so-called progressive movement was that it was very diffuse, and very involved a lot of activities, politics, educational reform, social welfare reform. The thing that sort of held everybody together uh, in terms of progressives was their belief that the South had to catch up with the world of the 20th century. It had to be modernized. Its institutions needed to be modernized in response to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so you see this in different forms, but especially in the South because there was a very clear realization that affected Southerners around the turn of the 20th century that they were far behind, that they were underdeveloped compared to the rest of the country. There was a huge income gap. The South was beset by various problems in industry and agriculture, an array of social tensions. So roughly between the, 18, the 1890s and the end of World War I, um, you see all across the United States, but also the South, this attempt to modernize institutions, upgrade the educational system, improve social welfare facilities, uh, a whole array of things. In politics, it also involved a kind of shrinking of the electorate, but a restriction that sort of accompanied the coming of reform. There was also a the theme of race is very powerful, I think, in the progressive era, because this was an era of segregation. It was an era of triumph of white supremacy in a lot of respects. So there, there are various different, different dimensions to the movement and the phenomenon the sort of middle-class character, the urban character. There's a large role for women, really the first time in American history that middle-class urban women had gotten involved in public affairs. That's mm -hmm. part, of the, part of the phenomenon mm -hmm. of uh, progressivism. Well, you know, if you think of progressivism, the idea of letting the, the voters recall a politician right. once elected or initiate something, that didn't, that didn't happen. It happened in the Midwest primarily, mm -hmm. but it happened elsewhere, right? Yes. Up east? Yeah, well, the, uh, the ballot, ballot initiative recall, these are all things that are outside the South. You don't see typically uh, ballot referendum is sort of a Western thing and Midwestern to some extent. So in, in many respects, I think the people that would call themselves some progressives in the South were not. They were uneasy about extending democracy. They weren't necessarily avid Democrats. Mm -hmm. They believed in expert government. They didn't necessarily think that the best kind of government was one that was run by mass politics, by mass democratic politics. So that's, that's a feature that's, I think, particularly strong in the South. 
one of the things that is a national objective of political progressivism is, is the primary, for example, political primaries. Prior to the 1890s, political parties set, uh, chose candidates by typically caucus. And the primary comes in as a form of candidate selection. And this became very popular in the South, but it became the white primary. So it's, it's got a racial dimension to it. Purification of the electorate is one objective. Purification meaning restriction. So that's another kind of characteristic that's a little bit different among okay. Southerners. All right. That's primarily a Southern phenomenon, not something that's happening in Illinois, Indiana. Not so much. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, does this go hand in hand with one of the many new Souths that began in the 1870s and 1880s or, or not? I think it does generally. I think because the people of this generation, the progressive era generation, were modernizers. They believed very much in, in what the New South had to represent, what the New South had to sell, which was economic development. So the mm-hmm. progressive reformers were very enthusiastic advocates of uh, modernization and economic development. And they saw it in terms of urban industrial mm-hmm. world. You take somebody like Henry Grady, who's a newspaper editor, the classic New South advocate, he would be very comfortable, I think, with a number yeah. of the things. Or Tompkins and Charlotte. Yes, Daniel, Daniel Tompkins. Indeed. Who, of course, was a South Carolinian yep. from Edgefield County. Charlotte Observer, also a big advocate. He also got into textiles. Indeed. Uh, and, and, they, I, and a lot of them tend to come from textile towns, I think. Uh, so there's, there's that sort of sociological element to uh, what was happening with the, the social base of reformers. Well, the first real progressives in South Carolina were South Carolina women. And one of the first things they attacked was child labor, which, of course, the textile executives were not very happy about the idea of a child labor law. And one of the incidents that sparked that actually happened here in Columbia because the good church ladies of Columbia, of most denominations, they had a Christmas tree for the poor children of the mill village. Well, it just so happened that Christmas Day was a work day. And so none of the children Mm. could come and collect their Christmas presents. And that really upset the ladies that why were these children eight, nine years old being, you know, 10 hour day on Christmas Day. And so beginning in Columbia and it really happened in Columbia. It sure didn't happen in Greenville, uh, textile town, but it happened in Columbia. They began to push for child labor. The state newspaper got behind it. And eventually they did pass a very weak child labor law. But that was that became sort of a way that things in terms of legislation happened. The News and Courier, or at that time just the news back Charleston News backed the effort as well. So the ladies learned to use the power of the press to make things happen. And if not, they had other means. Where do you think the Columbia Hospital came from? The ladies raised the money, and then they gave it to the city's doctors who hadn't done anything to raise the money. But public health, changing that, and of course there were a lot of issues, but in Darlington County, it was seeing that there was a nurse, a public health nurse in the county. It may not seem like much today, but back then, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and women were, as you say, prominent in, uh, particularly in things defending the home. So this didn't violate taboos about the role of women in public life. 
anything regarding the home was by extension seen as a proper role for women. Mm -hmm. So protecting children, for example, in child labor, perfectly appropriate. Education, which the nurture of the child is part of the role of women, traditional role of women in the Victorian era. A host of things related to children and, and welfare in the family are areas in which women can, can rightfully get involved in public life. Now, this sort of bleeds over later on into suffrage, but it, in early stages, campaigns for child labor, for example, are not necessarily leading to direct public involvement by women or, or the vote by women. That comes later. No, and, and one of the ways that, that women eventually did involve in that suffrage was they had uh, self-improvement clubs, reading clubs, literary societies, and some of them actually up in Greenville and Spartanburg were not very shy about moving from we're going to study Tennyson this week to get out the suffrage banners. Progressives in the South had to worry about being labeled progressive, and that was particularly true of women. If you push something too hard, they're going to start talk, they're going to resurrect Amelia Bloomer and Miss mm -hmm. Cat and all of those women up north who are trying to upset the traditional role of the family. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that was something that could be charged. And so that's where I think the women in South, particularly in Columbia, the Columbia women's organizations, using the press was a very shrewd move. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, and they were very good at that. I think the women reformers and reformers generally were media savvy. They knew how to communicate through the media. The other important feature about them is I think that they were uh, profoundly influenced by um, evangelical Christianity. So this desire to improve society, the belief that society was perfectible, that you could create a, king, a kingdom of God on earth, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of uh, what we might see as quaint kind of confidence that people had at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, infused a lot of uh, this generation of reformers who saw that, you know, by changing things, by reforming the hours for children, for example, that could actually achieve concrete good. Uh, I think we're 21st century. We're less. We're more cynical about it. We're less prepared to to think that necessarily society can be improved through action by by government. Well, and of course, the social gospel yes. had an impact even on some mainline denominations as well, particularly the Methodists. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, social gospel becomes a driving sort of force in the social gospel, really liberal evangelical Christianity that became a kind of ideological force behind the desire of people to reform society, that uh, this was an obligation of Christians mm -hmm. to work to improve and build the kingdom of God on earth right now. That was uh, very much infused, this whole progressive ethos. Probably the strongest statewide organization in South Carolina was the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And eventually they would get prohibition in South Carolina, but with mixed results depending upon the county. Uh, <laughs> in Charleston, it had absolutely no influence whatsoever. <laughs> but if you go to the governor's mansion now, the Lace House was the headquarters of the WCTU. And when they sold it to the state, they weren't supposed to allow any alcohol to be served in it. That's changed, but... <laughs> <laughs> In terms of politics, you mentioned that it was the purification of, of the roles, uh, the, vo the voting roles, and that held true in terms of the color line with what the women were doing, that they were 
interested in helping white children, particularly male children. They got concerned with the labor law and the health conditions. They didn't have much concern for uh, black women, black families. Uh, and as we learned last week in Greenville, when the employment situation and the money that soldiers were sending home that black women didn't work, Greenville County actually tried to pass a, a law to force black women to in, back into domestic service, that they had to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there are a number of sort of retrograde features, I think, to the progressive agenda as it, as it applied to African Americans. Um, one historian, one of the first historians of of the era described it as progressivism for whites only, and that's only slightly hyperbole, I think. On the other hand, there, there were pockets, I think, of, of, of the ways in which, or sort of small areas in which the progressive movement affected African Americans, and some, some degree of participation by kind of parallel groups of African American women, for example, become involved in temperance, become involved in a variety of, but very strictly abiding by the color line. So black organizations were side by side with white, but not mixed. Yes, yeah. the, the, in, in this state, the black women's club movement comes into really into flower in the early 20th century, parallel with white. And it, again, they started out as literary clubs, self-improvement clubs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that kind of thing. But the idea of progressivism for whites only, is that just a, a Southern phenomenon or was that a national phenomenon? Um, to a larger degree, it's a national phenomenon, I think. I mean, the, um, race is a, is a subject that sort of affects all Americans around the country in the early 20th century. In, in um, California, it's not so much African Americans as it is Asians. So issues of including non-white groups, I think, is typical. Typical. It's not unusual at all. In fact, the, uh, another example of what I'm talking about might be the posture of reformers toward um, immigration. This country had a history of open immigration until 1924, 1919, 1924, and um, an item on the plank of progressive reform was, was immigration restriction. So there, there was a degree of conflict, I think, on ethnic groups as well as racial groups. It's characteristic nationally of what made a progressive and what made the progressive movement. Um, it just has that manifestation because of the what's seen as a kind of pressing need of race and the pressing need perhaps to establish and solidify white supremacy, which is part of what's going on here. Yeah. Well, one of the things I usually associate with progressivism would be journalism. And I'm thinking about people like Jacob Rees and yes. the folks that Teddy Roosevelt ended up calling the, the muckrakers, mm -hmm. Ada Tarbell, people like that. The media played a, a big role in the progressive movement, mm -hmm. did it not? It did. I think it, uh, the newspaper press is a big part of it, and the newspaper press itself has changed. We have to keep that in mind. I think the modern uh, American press is, emerges really in the beginning of the 20th century uh, out of what newspapers had, been, newspapers had been like in the 19th century. And the reformers are very effective at using the media, and the media is very effective at using reformers, I think. So there's a sort of a symbiosis there between the two groups. Um, so yeah, I think the, the transformation of media and the different kind of role that media plays in, news, print media plays in this America and also in the South changes in the first half of the 20th century especially. So the big city newspapers, the Louisville News and Courier, not so much the New Orleans newspaper. Then, you know, if you talk about 
politics and urban reform, you don't want to look at New Orleans or Memphis, mm -hmm. for example, where bossism and so forth were pretty mm -hmm. widespread. Yeah. Well, there's just better communication all over the country. So what's going on in uh, other parts of the country, people know about more to a greater extent. I think people travel. I like to say that this generation is really probably the first national generation in American history in terms of seeing the world in national and even international terms, if that makes sense. The way in which they're connected nationally. Mm -hmm. Professional organizations, for example. Networks that sort of extend, some of which are encouraged by media, some of which are just encouraged by greater communication. This isn't true in the 19th century quite as much, I don't think at all. This is different. It's a different thing, different phenomenon. Getting back to the idea of progressivism, when Richard I. Manning was inaugurated as governor, and you know that Coleman Blees, who preceded him, was so upset that Manning was elected, he resigned from the governorship so he did not have to ride several days before the inauguration, so he didn't have to ride in the same carriage with Richard I. Manning. <laughs> who in his inaugural address said, we are progressive Democrats. There's not anything we can't do to better South Carolina. Now, pretty bold statement. Mm -hmm. What about other Southern governors at the time? We'll get back to mining, but I'll let you talk about what was going on in North Carolina. Well, North Carolina has a series of governors that um, sort of adopt the progressive mantle, and uh, Charles B. Acock might be the the classic example. He's governor of North Carolina in the early turn of the 20th century. Acock, who's not in favor at all, and that he's out of favor right now because he's also a white supremacist. Parts of North Carolina have been busy taking his name off school buildings and dormitories and that kind of thing. Uh, but Acock was known as the education governor. He was a person who came in kind of adopting the progressive program for North Carolina, and North Carolina becomes in many ways um, sort of a poster child for the um, progressive South. Well, is, is this when they put North Carolina begins to put a lot of money into higher education? Yes, exactly. So it's precisely this during this era that uh, North Carolina makes this big leap in terms of its higher education system. It doesn't do that much, relative, in, in retrospect, that much for secondary, uh, primary and secondary schools, elementary and secondary schools, but it does for, certainly for universities, mm -hmm. and uh, there's sort of a conscious decision in the state leadership, I think, to uh, make a great university as a sort of engine of economic development and growth. So in a, in a certain respect, I think that's the biggest legacy of the progressive era in that state is this, what happened with the universities and the will, sort of the willingness of the leadership to go along with it and, and actually put resources in mm -hmm. to do this, see, seeing the value of what a, a great university could mean. Richard I. Manning, and I've, I've been on record in saying this, that he was the most effective governor this state has ever had. He promised to do several things. One was to reform uh, the state tax code, which was incredibly complex and not very equitable across the state. He talked about the prison system needing reform, and he accomplished those things. And there were some others, but those were the, the main ones. Education would, would get in the the late 1920s. But as you mentioned in, before we started having our conversation on air, you had looked at Manning and said there was a whole spate of legislation that passed, prison reform, I mean, mm -hmm. the asylum, all of those issues that could be identified with national progressivism, he did. And of course, he was one of the early supporters of Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. 
I think South Carolina was one of the two delegations, southern delegations that started out pro-Wilson and they stayed with Wilson until he got nominated. Yeah, and the election of Wilson in 1912 sort of represents the coming of age of Southern progressives, Southern progressive Democrats. What Wilson represents is this, a lot of what we talked about, which is uh, expertise, education, an activist sort of approach to government and uh, using the tools of government to ameliorate or to smooth over the rough, ed rough edges of the uh, Industrial Revolution. Just like Manning was responsible for a, sp a spate of legislation in his tenure, Wilson, of course, a spate of legislation sort of remade what the federal government could do. So that's, it's interesting to look at Wilson as sort of the connections between the national politics and uh, local progressive movement. Wilson, Wilson was a sort of progressive figure, the progressive, one of the key progressive figures in the national level. South Carolinians claim he was one of them. I mean, he's one of three southern states that could. But southerners claim he's one of their own, even though he was president of Princeton and governor of New Jersey. Your family has a long history of dealing with, with Woodrow Wilson. Do you think that was right, or had he really changed once he went to Princeton? I mean, No, he always considered himself a southerner, um, and that if you believe what he said, Wilson said on a number of occasions that he, he was Southern. Mm -hmm. And uh, the majority of his life was spent outside the South. But he liked Southern food, he liked uh, Southern customs, his family was Southern. I think there's, he visited Chapel Hill, I know, in 1910 and mm -hmm. um, told his audience that Chapel Hill's the one place where I don't have to apologize for being a Southerner. You know, I feel as though I'm home. So thoroughly Southern, to me at least, I think Wilson was clearly a Southerner. His accent wasn't clearly, wasn't, wasn't Deep South. And in terms of a array of other attitudes, he was, there are complicated features to Wilson, but he cannot be understood unless you understand him as a Southerner. Yeah. Well, his accent probably changed. You know, he, he tried one year at an alma mater and couldn't quite make it, so right. he transferred <laughs> to Princeton, and that's... That's the story anyway, right? <laughs> that's the story, yes. So Wilson, when he gets to be president, has a whole group of Southerners, the Democrats take over Congress. So Southerners are now chairing the major committees. Exactly. Yeah, so because of seniority um, mm -hmm. and because Southern, um, Southern Democrats had been in office and because that's how the, the Congress works, if you have seniority, you control key committee assignments. Wilson, uh, the Wilson administration had allies mm -hmm. and most of his key allies really were Southern Democrats, some of whom were farther to the left than he was, there was that dynamic going on, but most of whom are also in favor of segregation, so there's a the whole issue of segregation that sort of percolates up to fed the federal level uh, during the Wilson administration. You just said that there were Southern Democrats who were to the left of Woodrow Wilson. Can you give us some examples? Claude Kitchen would be a class classic example in North Carolina. Congressman in North Carolina opposed World War I, voted against the war resolution. Kitchen is probably He's only one example of a group of Southern Democrats that were agrarian in focus, anti-corporate, anti-big business, and they're big enough to kind of shape legislation in the Wilson administration. So a number of the key pieces of legislation enacted by the Congress uh, between 1913 and 1920 were stronger than they would have been, more to the left than they would have been without the presence of this group. The classic example might be the, um, the war revenue uh, legislation that Congress enacted before the war heavily taxed the rich, and this was a major part of the platform of these kind of agrarian Democrats. So, so really, you've got this element of 
19th century populism. Yes, very much so. They adopt that tradition of anti-railroad, anti-corporate sentiment, using the tax structure to levy higher taxes on more fluent groups of people. The, the way in which the army was organized in World War I and the way in which it was military forces were mobilized also had a feature that was slightly more democratic. The way the draft was shaped, the selective service system that was adopted in 1917 was put together kind of in a way to, to be fair mm-hmm. uh, based on the past experiences of um, Civil War in particular where mm-hmm. the draft didn't work very well at all. So these are all kind of elements of sort of like the Freedom Caucus today in the Republican Party. I guess they're always nipping at the heels of the president. In the case of Wilson, they were always pushing him a little farther. So he compromised, but he didn't have the legislation he'd favor would be a little farther to the left, a little farther on the liberal side. If you're looking back 100 years now, we are, yeah. what was the lasting influence, do you see, of these Southern progressives? And, and choose any state, not just South Carolina. You've written about Southern progressives in general. Just, I think its most lasting um, legacy is the institutions, and particularly in education and public health, those two things, to some extent, public welfare, but that comes later, I think. It comes really in the 30s during the New Deal. Certain features of the progressive era program in education were key. Uh, For example, compulsory education, requiring children to go to school, which our friend Cole Bleese was, you know, not happy about. uh, He was very much opposed to it. Very much opposed to it, so. Uh, He was uh, also opposed to having children inoculated. He was also opposed to having children examined by a physician if they were ill. Right, all parts of what we might see as modern public health, I guess. I mean, you, you sort of assume your children ought to be inoculated, and people disagree with that now, but it's become kind of a common part of what we see as public health. But during this period, you really get to, on the issue of public health, you, be, you begin to get an infrastructure of public health built mm-hmm. in the World War I era. Mm-hmm. 1909 to 1914, there's this famous effort funded by Northern Philanthropy by the Rockefellers to eradicate parasitic infection, hookworms specifically. And um, John D. Rockefeller provided a million dollars to establish this regional commission that would attempt to educate and expose and ultimately expand the infrastructure of public health. And it was spectacularly successful. Following up on that, I think the next generation at the county level Departments of County Health you begin to get in the, in the World War I era, really. A host of things that really become common and become features of what state governments did now. I mean, they, they would provide for sanitary water and sewer, for example, or for inspections of outhouses, which are a leading source of hookworm infection. So this is all uh, an education. In terms of education, I think it's safe to say in the first part of the 20th century, the progressive era, that education came to be the, the primary form of socialization for South Carolinians, Southerners, and Americans. Whereas prior to that period, 1890s, even the 1890s, most children in the South didn't spend uh, much time in schools. They'd spend three months a year in school. And, uh, and that was a lot. In many school districts, that was a lot. That was a lot, indeed. Yeah. But education wasn't compulsory. So it wasn't necessarily the main thing people did. There weren't high schools. Mm-hmm. And one of the things reformers do is they build up these schools. They require now compulsory education, and they, they provide a kind of administrative structure to uh, make education 
the and most important component of socialization of youth today. So, Manning did not do all that much for education in South Carolina. In fact, the State Department, it's one of those things that we have not had a governor inaugurated since 1900 who did not say that he or she was going to improve the quality of education in South Carolina. And I actually did this. I did not have a graduate student do it. I read every state of the state address and every inaugural address from 1900 to 2000. And it's, we're going to do this, we're going to do that for education. Well, we're still trying to do something for education. But it, at this time, we have a progressive movement. The State Department of Education has three separate subdivisions. They have one for white schools, one for black schools, and then they have one for rural schools, which is really rural white schools. And in 1915, there were only a dozen high schools in this state that could be accredited of any sort. Uh, and surprisingly, some of those were in the smaller towns where you had some folks with a little bit of money, usually some textile town, where they could afford to have a high school. If you look at the postcards that towns issued, which were all to po- you know, boost the local town, this is what we've got. If they had a graded school, in other words, instead of just you've got grades one through six in one classroom and whatever is the other side, if you had a graded school, that was a great sign of progress. And you will see in these, from these little towns, so-and-so graded school, and that was a big sign of, of improvement. I think that's more in South Carolina a local effort than it is mm-hmm. a statewide effort. Um, all of this takes money. Uh, you mentioned cities getting into sewerage, water. Charleston, for many years, had a private waterworks, and it was then taken over by the city because private enterprise did such a terrible job pushing bad water that the city took the city took it over uh, and established their own waterworks. And that that happens in town after town. Uh, Columbia takes over; had already taken it over before this time, but the municipalities become responsible for, again, this is a public health issue, and paving streets. All All of that goes hand in hand, but again, it takes money, and I'm afraid this is where South Carolina, we really didn't have a lot of capital. You meant, you asked me about what was the big program that happened in South Carolina in terms of public improvement highways. Well, that didn't really happen until the late 1920s when they passed a $60 million bond bill. Now, that was a lot of money, folks, $60 million. But yet, in fact, it was a constitutional crisis because the upcountry had already paved their county highways, their roads, but Barnwell, Bamberg, Hampton, Jack, the low country counties hadn't. But guess who controlled the General Assembly? the barons from the low country. So they got this bill passed and it basically paved the roads in the, in the low country. But this is late in the 1920s and the state is already in a depression and they passed this $60 million road bill. I guess they found the money somewhere. It certainly did not go into higher education. <laughs> and at this time, we had five institutions, state-supported institutions of higher education. The late Dan Hollis said South Carolina had five and they couldn't really 
adequately support one. Mm. So the pie got split five ways. Winthrop, Clemson, Carolina, SC State, and the Citadel. North Carolina decided to put their money into higher education. Now you, you also had more than one institute. You had you know, Chapel Hill, you had State, Women's College. Women's College, indeed. Yeah. yeah, those three, and you had teacher's colleges as well. Um, and then you had a system of black, eventually five historically black um, colleges in North Carolina more than any other southern state. But yeah, I mean, the, in North Carolina, the, um, the thrust is toward a unified University of North Carolina, and it's one of the first states to establish a system of uh, multi-campus system. Greensboro, Chapel Hill, and Raleigh are consolidated in 1931 uh, under a single system. We still believe in independence for our colleges here in <laughs> South Carolina. So as you look back, you say, do you think education and health? And I, I kept thinking about You mentioned the, the hookworm reform, which they had, the Rockefellers actually had a research institute in, in Spartanburg County. But you also had Pellegra yes. at the same time. And this is another example of the state not doing something that the women did. South Carolina did not have a tuberculosis sanitarium, and TB was prevalent. If you got TB, you got kicked out of the house. The disease was so contagious. Well, a group of women here in Columbia decided that there needed to be a TB sanitarium, and they established Ridgewood Camp on the edge of Columbia. And eventually, women from around the state pushed the issue, and the state took it over during the 1920s. But it began at this same progressive period, about 1906, 1907 was when they first started their push for a TB sanitarium. And it, it came out of an incident that here in Columbia where some church women were visiting the county home. Everybody know what the county home was? The poorhouse, yeah. visiting the county home and they found a destitute woman from a very nice family, a member of their church, and a young girl with TB. And they said, we need to have, and this is their words, an old lady's home, and we need to have a TB sanitarium. But they pushed the TB sanitarium, and that became Ridgewood, Ridgewood Camp, uh, and eventually the state hospital for TB. So once again, it's the state's slow to get into it. The population it's going to push these issues. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, a lot of these, a lot of activities were sort of done on the on a voluntary basis by private groups, uh, with perhaps the expectation that they'd be picked up by government or by public institutions. Mm -hmm. So, in, in a lot of cases, they're kind of creating a model for what you might have. In the case of uh, public health, that was often true. We can just show, for example, in, in hookworms. If you have functioning toilets, that's half the battle right there. So they, they would demonstrate what a sanitary privy was, demonstrate good health practices, educate the population, and then create kind of the seed for later development, the goal of which was the development of public responsibility for these things. And that would be true, I think, in what the example you just gave as well. One of the ideas that came out of progressivism, too, was parks, recreation, open again, open air, health. City plans were done for southern towns. Columbia had several. We've never implemented any of them. 
although Martin Luther King Park was one of the, which is down here in Five Points, uh, was one of the original parks envisioned in this, a green necklace that these architects mm -hmm. had that was going to circle the city of, of Columbia. And again, that idea is, it's health behind it. You can go take the open air, you can promenade. It used to be called Valley Park. It was on the trolley line, so everybody could, downtown could go out there and, and get on it. Let's move back to, to Woodrow Wilson because there were some folks last week that got real curious about this Southern boy that became president. What impact do you think his growing up in the American South during Reconstruction had on him when it came to post-World War I politics and diplomacy? Well, I think he, you know, he lived through the Civil War and Reconstruction. He remembered the Civil War. He was in Columbia during the war, the end of the war. Um, Sherman came. Mm -hmm. So he was, Wilson was very conscious. He also was a historian of the Civil War. So Wilson was the only PhD we've had as a president, I believe, in American history. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote uh, what, for its time, was a sort of standard history of the Civil War. Division and Reunion was the title of the book. Uh, so he was deeply immersed in the, that experience. And during World War One in some respects, wanted to correct some of the problems that had arisen in terms of the draft, for example, in terms of management of the army, to some extent civil liberties. But the war, I think for anybody of that generation, the war was a defining experience. Mm -hmm. You know, he was born in 1856, so he was nine years old when the war ended, and uh, Reconstruction as well. He sort of partly bought the the version of history that, that condemned Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And if you read his History of the American People, which is another book he published, he sort of buys into the notion that the South was occupied in Reconstruction and the South was a victim, the White mm -hmm. South was a victim of the war. But he was also very conscious of the need to uh, reconcile and reunify the country. Mm -hmm. So during it, that's part of the symbolism as presidency, I think, is that first time a Southern president's been elected since the Civil War, and uh, it was a moment of reunification in some respects. Okay. He thought of himself as a Southerner, but did the rest of the country think of him as a Southerner? I mean, he's from, he is governor of New Jersey. I don't think the governor of South Carolina could have been nominated. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, the fact that he was governor of a major no Northeastern state. Well, I think he had... He, Probably was not considered a pure Southerner. He wasn't a pure Southerner. He was governor of New Jersey, as you say. And he was president of Princeton. He spent his, his entire professional career in the North. And so he was able to kind of go both ways, in a sense. He wasn't Richard Manning running for president, or he wasn't uh, Charles Eacock running for president. He was Woodrow Wilson. He was a national figure who was rooted in the South, but he had this... And he had a national following, certainly, but even before he was elected governor of New Jersey. He, he was a very popular after-dinner speaker go around the country and and had a following among newspaper editors, for example. So Wilson was unique that way. I think he, he, he was strongly rooted in the region, but he was also a person of national or international stature. Art, if he was a popular after-dinner speaker, was it American history? Yes, sort of light topics in American history. After-dinner speeches were kind of a common thing. There was almost a circuit of after-dinner speakers in the later 19th century. When he was president of Princeton, he would he'd go on the road frequently. It's a source of income as well. 
20-minute, 30-minute 30, 30 after-dinner talks were considered kind of standard in those days. And they were light topics, but they, some historical, some not, some just issues of public interest mm -hmm. that he would bring up. But, of course, that would have given him a tremendous national exposure that other people wouldn't have exactly. had at the time he... Exactly. So he's known nationally among the leadership class. Mm -hmm. He's known fairly widely among the newspaper world as well. So he already has this kind of standing as a national figure that he's not seen as somebody from South Carolina or from Virginia or North Carolina. He's able to command the support of Southern Democrats and Southern white Southerners especially, but isn't rooted in that, I guess is the best answer. Okay. I, th I think we might turn this over to the audience in a minute, but just sort of sum up how you would feel about progressivism in the South and kind of what happened to it. It's a key phenomenon in the history of the South in that it, it's the first organized effort to kind of modernize the region. It's the first kind of moment where I think Southerners realized that they were behind the rest of the country, uh, that they were kind of a country within a country, a third world country within this nation that had become the largest and most powerful industrial economy in the world. Southerners suddenly realized there's a kind of moment, I think, in the early 20th century that they they realize how far behind they are. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some, certainly at the state level of state government, there's a great deal of building that takes place mm -hmm. that you may not even notice. It's just an infrastructure that sort of emerges um, by the end of World War One. The classic sort of narrative about, classic narrative about Southern progressivism is that it died mm -hmm. during World War One, and to some extent it did, but there are a number of the things that, the legacy is still there, and the, the things I've talked about, the infrastructure of governmental improvement. The New Deal, the 1930s, is an even bigger expansion of a kind of liberal state, and uh, the difference there is that it's done largely at the federal level. As, for the most part, this is not done at the federal level here in the progressive era. It's a, it's a non-federal phenomenon. Federal government is still not uh, involved or intervening in uh, everyday affairs of Americans so much until the till the New Deal. Well, and, and again, back here to South Carolina, Manning made it a statewide effort, but other than that, it was really communities and private groups that were the progressives in, in our state. The women were at the forefront of these reforms. All right, we'll open the floor up to questions. I recently saw some photographs of mill-ill children working in the mills at age seven, eight. Were there any white men outspoken against child labor in the first few years of the 19th century, the 20th century? Actually, most white men, and I hate to bring out Mr. Tompkins of Charlotte, but he was virulently opposed to any child labor law and among people who would support him would be Coley Bleeves, who said if a father wants to send his children to work in the mill, that's the, father, that's the family's business, it's not the community's business. So, no, it was uh, in textile towns in the two Carolinas, you won't find any support for child labor laws. And see, children were very useful because they were nimble. That was why they, and they were cheap. And they were cheap. And part of the, what in, uh, mills would do is they would, they would hire entire families. So it was considered family labor as a kind of bonus. Uh, 
children didn't work seriously probably till about the age of nine um, when they achieved the dexterity. But uh, there's a great deal of support among families working in mills because that's a big piece of the income. I think what what's involved in the effort to try to regulate child labor sometimes is a is a distinct conflict between mill workers mm-hmm. and certainly the mill managers don't want interference. Mm-hmm. And middle-class urban groups are offended by it. I mean, they're offended by the notion that children would be working. That's not something progressives liked at all. They believe children should be in school. So working, uh, the whole idea of, of, a, of a child labor force is really anathema to the way they saw the world. Um, and you mentioned that the families were hired. At many, in many mill towns, the size of your house depended upon the number of hands you put into the mill. And that included the wife, as well as his children. How has Woodrow Wilson managed to escape the um, the revisionists' um, uh, seeming campaign to unmask anybody who was ever a white supremacist or owned slaves or uh, anything? I mean, I'm sure he didn't own slaves, but I, but uh, all his parents did. Father may have. Father did. Uh, and uh, uh, but but it, it seems to me I, I mean he has a reputation of being fully as racist as anybody in that era, uh, and yet everybody still seems to revere Woodrow Wilson, whereas they're taking you know Governor Acock and uh, whom I know nothing about, but I mean you mentioned him, and I'm sure others uh, uh, to task for having uh, dared to follow the, the general thought pattern of their time? To answer your question, I don't think he has escaped it. I mean, uh, if you were, if you follow what happened in Princeton, he, there was a huge controversy there in an attempt to take his name off the uh, Woodrow Wilson School of International Affairs, which is named after Wilson. And on the, the notion that he's, that Wilson was a racist, which I'm always a little uncomfortable with the term because it's historically anachronistic to describe somebody by 21st century standards. But Wilson's been rather sharply criticized, I think. I think he's gotten a bad rap. I mean, I grew up with, I, my dad was a Wilson scholar, so I'm, I grew up with Wilson and it's sort of in my head why I'm wired that way. But I think he's gotten a bad rap because I, I think the best way to describe Wilson would be a person who had the racial attitudes of a northerner. He was not a white supremacist of the southern variety. He was a white supremacist of the northern variety. <laughs> so he wasn't an active, ugly racist. I mean, there are plenty of plenty of them like that. My friend Cole Blees would certainly fall in that category. He's in a class all by himself. Yeah. But <laughs> there was a whole. There's you know where do we where do you start? And Wilson was just not in their league in terms of um, his his avid description of things in racial terms. He didn't write about race that much, really. But it's easy to label him as a racist. The New York Times wrote an editorial that called him a racist. I think the two things they hold that are brought up is one, his segregating the federal workforce, which had been integrated since 1865. And the other was his comment about his personal review of Birth of a Nation, which he called history writ enlightening, I believe that's the those yeah, are the two which, things that I usually see. I don't want to be a defender. I, mean, I try to avoid being a defender of him, but he didn't say that about 
written in Lightning. Okay, well, we good, know that now. I mean, it's actually. It was, I'm sorry, I read it in the press. No, that's that's common. <laughs> he actually didn't say it, and um, the federal government was segregated under his watch, but it was done largely by subordinates. So, uh, Post Office Albert Burleson was Postmaster General. He was an avid segregator. Robert McAdoo, Treasury, an avid segregator, and Wilson let it happen. But it wasn't Wilson saying, go segregate the federal government. It, it occurred mm-hmm. on his watch. He's responsible for it. But again, he's not an avid kind okay. of white supremacist. All right. Um, yes, I was actually wondering if you could talk about um, the move from the patronage system to the merit system. I know at the uh, federal and the national level, um, that's one of the main features of the progressive movement as it pertains to public administration having a government that is efficient and effective and provides equitable services to all citizens regardless if they voted regardless of whether they voted for the people in power did did we see that in South Carolina not right away and I'm, I'm thinking about the, the post office which was still a federal patronage long after the progressive period why do you think Olin D Johnson was one of the most powerful mm-hmm. senators and you know, um, there is a civil service that, and I'm, I'm sorry that I'm, it maybe had been one, something that Manning worked on, but I'm, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna swear to that, so we'll erase that from the program, Alfred. Uh, but if, eventually there is a civil service, but we, our civil service was so small that when the New Deal came in, there was no infrastructure to implement New Deal programs. It took several years for South Carolina to get money that was out there that we desperately needed because we didn't have a state government that could do that. That doesn't really answer your question, but. I think the, sta- I mean, the, certainly the standard changes so that, you know, the typical 19th century position, governmental position would be awarded according to political factors, political support. By the early 20th century, this notion of expertise becomes dominant. So you're, you're supposed to be qualified. That's important as part of public service and even that you should be trained, you know, that so there, there are programs now to, to train in the science of government. Now whether that actually occurs in reality is another matter, but it's it's part of the it's part of one of the main objectives I think of the progressive era. Yeah. All right. Bill, I want to thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Sometimes people would say progressivism in South Carolina before World War I. Is that not a contradiction in terms? Well, there were Southern progressives, black and white in South Carolina, dealing with a variety of issues from education to public health to public parks. And of course, when you're talking about progressives in South Carolina and World War I, the topic of Woodrow Wilson comes up a president of the United States who spent his teenage years in Columbia, South Carolina. All of that was part of a wide-ranging and interesting conversation and a very interesting and important part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina.
The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.